You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. You're listening to the Lux Pharmacist Podcast, a place where individuality, passion, and dedication are right at home. Here for those of you who are seeking inspiration and chasing their dreams and insights into the day-to-day life of a modern woman in pharmacy. Your host is an entrepreneurial pharmacist, a pharmacy advocate, and founder of the Lux Pharmacist. Welcome to the Lux Pharmacist Podcast, part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Lux Pharmacist Podcast. It feels like forever since I recorded my last episode, but it's great to be back in podcast land. Since we last talked, I graduated from residency, started my new job, and as many of you already know, I started preparing to take my BCPS exam, which stands for Board Certified Pharmacotherapy Specialist. The BCPS exam is one of the many certification exams a pharmacist can take, but it is the most general of them all, meaning that it encompasses pharmacotherapy in a wide range, where other exams like the BCACP or BCOP, which are ambulatory care and oncology, are obviously much more specified. The BCPS exam is also the only exam pharmacists are eligible to take after completing just one year of residency, so currently it's the only board certification exam that I am qualified to take. The other exams either require a PGY-2 in that specific area or about three years of clinical experience. And this clinical experience does also apply to the BCPS as well. So essentially, you do not need to do a residency to become board certified, but it certainly helps put you on the fast track to being eligible to take the exam. Now, you may be wondering, what is the whole point of getting board certified, or how can I best prepare to take my exam? And I'm very excited to announce that I have an absolutely incredible guest with us today, Dr. Anthony Busti, who's going to help us answer these questions, and I'm sure many, many more. So with that being said, hello, Dr. Busti. Thank you so much for joining me on my podcast today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm excited. Uh, so Dr. Busti is the founder and chief executive officer for High Yield Med Reviews, which is actually the program I'm using to prepare for my BCPS exam. And it's incredible, by the way. But before we get into board exams, can you tell our listeners a little more about yourself and about your journey, your journey through medicine? Because it is absolutely so unique. Yeah, absolutely. You know, my, my journey um, actually started 30 years ago <laughs> when, I, when I graduated from high school. Uh, so that means I'm actually old. Um, but it's always been about the patient and expanding my you know, own knowledge, even though I've gone through a lot of training. You know, so right after high school, I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do, but I uh, shadowed some professionals in physical therapy, occupational therapy. I shadowed a nurse, a physician even in a hospital administrator uh, who was actually my neighbor. But unfortunately, I didn't actually shadow a pharmacist at that time. I don't know why, but it just didn't, it just didn't happen. And, uh, you know, so I wasn't really sure what I was going to be cut out for. But one of the physicians that I shadowed was um, a nurse first. And he said that was one of the best decisions that he had ever made. And he said not only did he have a job, you know, right when he got out of undergrad, uh, but he learned a lot of aspects of patient care that he felt like made him a, a better clinician. And so I thought that sounded like a pretty good idea, uh, except the medical school part of it. 
Um, so, so I thought, well, that's a, that's a great place to start. Instead of just getting a biology degree, I can still minor in biology. And so I went off to nursing school and minored in a bio and minored in biology. Um, and it was while I was in nursing school taking pharmacology and biochem at the same time that I actually kind of fell in love with pharmacology. I was starting to put mechanisms together, asking lots of questions. Professor didn't really probably know all the answers and kind of just pushed it probably to the not. side. You yeah. know, um, and she's like, oh, you got to take this, our graduate course in advanced pharmacology. And so I did, and of course, asked more questions. And that professor said, you know, you really probably should look into this uh, PharmD. And I, was like, I think you're a little too interested for what yeah, I have to offer. <laughs> I know. I was like, PharmD, I don't even know what that is. And uh, so I researched it and, and realized that actually as a nursing student, I had interacted with PharmDs. I just didn't recognize them at first. They were just part of the medical team. I just thought they were you know, regular physicians. Like I didn't see the, the credentials and know, know at the time. Yeah, what that uh, was. And so, yeah, I mean, I shadowed a pharmacist and I was like, sold. This is what I want to do. I love the pharmacology, <laughs> bridging the mechanisms and all that stuff. And so I went to pharmacy school. I went to Texas Tech um, from Texas. And uh, while I was in that PharmD program, I worked as a uh, nurse in the surgical trauma ICU and then for two years, and then about a, the last year, I went into the emergency department. After my fourth year, I couldn't do it anymore because of rotations. And when I graduated, I um, you know, ended up going to do a residency. And then after that, I took a faculty position. Uh, when I was faculty in pharmacy, uh, I, I taught at Texas Tech Health Science Center in the Dallas-Fort Worth regional campus, where I you know, not only had a clinical practice, but I was also a, a residency program director for a pharmacotherapy residency and an internal medicine residency. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I did that for about seven, eight years and was teaching at the medical school at UT Southwestern in Dallas and just found myself really getting more involved in medical education, not only with uh, pharmacists, but also nurses at that time, because I was teaching advanced pharmacology in the nurse practitioner program as well. And I just felt like, you know, I was missing something in the diagnostic piece. And I knew that medical training was going to, you know, do that. And so I uh, went to medical school uh, and then chose to do my residency in emergency medicine. And I did most of my training there at Johns Hopkins in, in the Northeast and then um, did further training in evidence-based healthcare at Oxford. So I'm a little bit of an EBM uh, junkie. Um, so it's been a long road and a unique one, but it's always been about the patient and always been being about trying to help the healthcare team, how to work together, understand each, each other's unique value and characteristics that we bring to patient care. And so while I do predominantly run the company um, and develop content and review content and work with faculty from around the country, I also still practice. Um, I, I still stay relevant and uh, so I do a few shifts in the emergency department per month so to keep myself engaged but also I really just enjoy taking care of people and so that's my that's my journey it's been a long one but it, 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 it has and it's it's less overwhelming to hear all this because I already knew like a little bit <laughs> but when when Tamsin when I first talked to her and she told me like oh you know he he was a nurse and then he got a farm D and then got an MD I was like what <laughs> yeah. I was like he what? I was just stunned yeah, so I, I feel it, like we need to take a pause for like the listeners to really sink <laughs> in all the stuff that you've done because when yeah. I first heard it I was just blown away 
I mean, well, like you have to love medicine and patient care to go through yeah, that much was... training and to continue to want to do more. So <laughs> I commend you because I can't even imagine going back to school, let alone like going back and doing an MD and doing that yeah. residency and all that. So, so well, I, I think like... everyone just needs to like sink it in. Yeah. I mean, I, I really feel like I took the, um, um, the commitment to lifelong learning, uh, I, I was fully committed to that. <laughs> oh, yes. So at any rate. And now you help other people continue yeah. with their lifelong learning. Yeah. So what Absolutely. what made you want to create High Yield Med Review? Like what was the inspiration behind doing that? So, you know, as I was going through my own training and, and all of those professions, I, and then also having practice in those professions, I started recognizing kind of holes or gaps in my own knowledge Mm-hmm. And I, I was going, how know, you know, how did I get through all of this training and still not know that? And it wasn't that I went to bad programs or had, you know, faculty who didn't know what they were doing or whatever. I mean, I was a good student. I worked hard, obviously, but there were just certain components of it that I felt like there were connections that weren't being made, and in the way that I we were teaching, because a lot of times we get taught the way we teach the way we were taught. And yeah. so we would propagate the same sort of methodology in the approach. And I was always one that wanted to not just, you know, memorize a bunch of facts. I wanted to understand why something was the right answer. Mm-hmm. So then I wasn't then memorizing something. I was actually retaining it and applying it because that's essentially what you need to be able to do, not just in real world clinical practice, but even on this test. I mean, the BCPS exam is, is difficult for a reason. Um, and so you have to be able to take that, your, that core knowledge and apply it to your clinical experience at a higher level to, you know, be able to answer some of these questions. Yeah. And I think that that is something that students all the time struggle with. Like you tell them, you know, you're never going to know everything. It's not about memorizing the top 300 drugs. It's truly about understanding everything behind it, the pharmacology behind it, why there are potential issues that there are and and knowing that and knowing when you don't know something and that's okay too and knowing how to continue your education outside of school or knowing where to look things up i think that no matter what program we went to or what residency we went through or what job we have we're always going to find stuff that we don't know but you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's not enough to just like memorize little facts. You truly have to understand to be a good clinician. Absolutely. And I think that probably the, the one thing that was the trigger point for me and starting the company was the purposeful and strategic integration of evidence behind those decisions as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's one thing to like talk about a journal or an article and do a journal club, but it's another thing of being able to take that information and now integrate it with that core knowledge, with your clinical experience and make the, all three of them essentially kind of come together. And, you know, that's, that was the piece that I felt like was a little bit missing in some of the approaches to my own training and education. And so in my own model and what we do as a company is a reflection of that. Uh, especially in the study groups and in our EBM study groups that we do, um, we're really trying to integrate those things. And so that's kind of the main reason that, you know, kind of motivated me to get things started with the company. Absolutely. And evidence-based medicine, like why we do what we do is so important. I feel like a lot of the times Mm -hmm. 
we forget about that. We forget about where the stuff came from. You know, we're just like, right. oh, it's in the guidelines. Well, what yes. got it in the guidelines? Like what, what study was done or what evidence do we have that makes it a, you know, guideline recommendation or what makes it not a good recommendation? So right. I wish I paid more attention to drug literature in school. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, because no, that no. was everyone's like everyone hated yeah. that class, and they all told us, you know, <laughs> no, it's so important, and yeah. we're like, we don't care, we hate it, like it's not fun. Yeah. And then going through like appies and you know doing journal mm-hmm. clubs and things like that, and even in residency, like the stats and trying to, mm-hmm. like you said, apply it to real life. At the end of every journal club we did, we'd always get asked like would you change practice? What do you think we should be Absolutely. doing? Would you do anything differently based on like this study that you just read? And right. it, it is, it's hard to think about some of that stuff, but you really have to think about the evidence that you're looking at. So I love that you guys incorporate that. Um, and I think it's so fascinating that you kind of worked in that realm too, because it is so relevant, but I think it's something that a lot of people kind of forget about. Absolutely. Yeah. So in thinking about BCPS and board certifications, why do you think a pharmacist should get board edu- uh, board certified? Like, what is the point of it? Do you think it can help their career? Yeah. Why is everyone into it? That's a, a very important question. Uh, and I think that there's, you know, in my mind, there's about three main reasons. And those three reasons actually somewhat interconnect and interact mm-hmm. with each other. Uh, I think the the, the first and foremost motivator should be that we really are improving patient care when we do this because you're mm-hmm. expanding your knowledge, your understanding of what you're doing, why you're doing what you're doing, and that that would then translate into an improvement in the patient care that is being provided, um, you know, on a regular or a daily basis. Um, and secondly to that um, is creating additional value in what pharmacy brings as part of the healthcare team, right? I mean, mm-hmm. when working, having worked in nursing, pharmacy, and in medicine, we each bring something unique. But it has to be purposeful. You have to be engaged. You have to interact, and you have to be a part of that team and contribute. And so having this credential and having that additional board certification not only validates that knowledge and understanding, but it, it hopefully encourages you to bring that extra added value to the team that the, with the team or the physician or the nurse go, wow, that was helpful, you know, and we need to have pharmacists around to be a part of that team. Mm-hmm. And so being board certified at some level gets you into those areas. Cause we know that board certification does open up opportunities to interact with other, other healthcare professionals in a clinical setting. And so, you know, when you look at your career, like the third reason would be career progression and even some level of job security. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so these things add value to the whole healthcare team because of the unique information and perspective that the clinical pharmacist brings, especially one that I think is board certified. Um, other reasons, you know, obviously from a career standpoint, you know, there is some level of distinction, prestige, you know, it's a validated marker of higher level of training that someone has achieved. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are, those are some of the things that why I think, you know, as a clinician, you should be motivated to want to do that. You're going to be better as a clinician. You're going to also provide better care to the patients that you're serving. Yeah, I like what you said about just being a better clinician in general, because especially with the BCPS, because it is so general, like when I'm studying for this, 
I'm taking it as a self-assessment of where my knowledge is at and where my knowledge is lacking because you really don't get that post-residency. It really Mm -hmm. is a (laughs) self-reflection and you staying on top of your own self and your own learning and being responsible for that. Um, And, you know, like you said, there is some prestige that comes with this and that comes with being board certified because it's not that easy to get. Um, the, the pass rates are much lower than the NAPLEX and things like that. Um, do you think it's good that the pass rate is so much lower? So I think that anything of value, right, is not going to be easy to get. I agree. Right? I mean, if it was anybody could just go and take the test and just pass it. You know, eh, right? Sort of that like, wouldn't that wouldn't hold much weight. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like, yeah. why does an Olympian spend their entire life or decades pursuing a gold piece of metal? metal yeah. Right. I mean, it'd be cheaper and quicker just to go buy a circle. <laughs> you know, someone have somebody cut out a piece of gold for you and put it on, you know, and hang it up on the wall. Um, there's something of value that goes into the meaning of that gold medal. And so when you see Olympians who have poured their lives into that, you know, literally in tears, you know, when they have won their respective event, those tears are because of all the hard work and the investment that paid off finally to achieve what only a few people can achieve. So it has a lot of value. And so I, you're right. I think that with the test being, you know, having a low pass rate, I think in this, you know, this past spring, it was around 70%. You know, by the time I took it, it was in the low 60s, upper 50s. That means almost just, you know, just over half of the people taking it failed. Yeah. Yeah. And, I think, I think spring 2020 was 70%. The yeah. fall 2019 was like 68%. Mm-hmm. And to put that in perspective, NAPLEX is normally around like 89, 90%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you look at even other boards outside of pharmacy, like medicine, like, mm-hmm. you know, my emergency medicine boards, or if you look at internal medicine, family medicine, just as another kind of comparison, the average pass rate is, is 92%. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's pretty high. So you got like, why would the BPS exams be so much lower? Well, for one, I think it's important to recognize that a, you know, a BCPS certification is not required. You know, it's not a licensure exam. It's an additional no, no, certification, you know, NAPLEX and the ABEM BORBs and all these kind of things are, you know, obviously to get, you know, licensure. So there is a distinction there. And I think that it's, it is a good thing that it does have a slightly lower pass rate because I think that sheds light on its value. And of course, at the end of the day, uh, you're going to work harder, you know, and when you work harder and you learn more, Again, who's going to benefit at the end of that? Your patients. That's right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I think, like, obviously BCPS is pretty generalized, but it is still very clinical, where the NAPLEX isn't truly fully clinical because you can't do that. Not every pharmacist who graduates is going into a completely clinical role. So with those exams, they're obviously much more generalized, where when you get board certified, and really any of the pharmacotherapies, but... BCPS, like you are distinguishing yourself as a clinical pharmacist, which I think is really important for those of us who are in, you know, that sector of pharmacy. Absolutely. So I feel like you're the master preparing for this exam (laughs) because you've obviously taken it and you created an amazing study tool or review course, whatever you want to call it. Um, 
how did you study for it originally? And what do you think is the best way to prepare? Well, so, you know, I think it's gonna be different for different people because people come to us as from a company perspective, they come to us from different backgrounds, levels of training. Some people have been out for a few years. Some people are straight out of residency. Um, and so, you know, it's gonna be obviously a little bit different. Taking it straight out of residency uh, is one of the, the best ways to approach it because, you know, your mindset has been into learning, you know, you've been taking tests and you're, you're still in that kind of learning mode and things are still fresh. So if you're mm -hmm. fresh out of residency, if you can and the time fits, uh, try to make an effort to take it. Uh, and that's, that is exactly what I did when I finished my pharmacy residency. I took it uh, in the fall right after graduation and I was so glad that I did that. If you've been out for a little bit longer, obviously the approach is gonna be a little bit different because we all sort of get comfortable in an area that we work in. And sometimes when we get into those specific areas, certain other, you know, other information that we used to know or you know, be able to interact with and talk about or apply, it, it starts to you know, dwindle away. And if we're not investing in that, either through CE, lifelong learning activities, journal clubs, these kind of things, then you start to neglect that area of your, of your training. Um, but I think that regardless, okay, regardless of where you come from in the, that level, there is a certain approach that we feel like is a model of success. And it is an educational model is known where you start out understanding and making sure that you know that core or what we call explicit knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, this is sort of the facts, the sort of the things about mechanisms and side effects and drug interactions and those kind of things that, yeah, we might sort of take it, you know, we might might think, well, maybe I don't, I already know that kind of stuff. But don't assume that just because you're a pharmacist that you know all those basic things. Sometimes we do need to be reminded of those, especially if it's been a little bit, of, it's been a while since you've done it. Oh, absolutely. Um, then what's important, obviously, and happens in usually residency training, or when you get into clinical practice, you're taking that explicit knowledge and then you're, you're migrating towards what is called tacit knowledge. And that's where you, this is where you begin to, to apply the information in a very specific way to that patient in that patient scenario. You're no longer really relying so much on memorization of information, okay? Because the patient doesn't present to you as a multiple choice question. They present to you with other comorbidities and side of, or, uh, other medications and, and allergies and all these things. And you have to be able to take that core knowledge at a higher level of application and then apply it to unique specific patient care scenarios. And when you do that, you get to that higher level of not only understanding why you do what you do, but really competency is being demonstrated. And so what the B BCPS exam, as well as the other BPS exams, are really trying to do are to identify clinical pharmacists who are able to demonstrate that higher level of understanding and competency through the application of the knowledge through questions, right? Because you have to take a test at some point. So it's either defending it orally, right? With oral boards or something like that, which are done in some professions. But in, in this case, for BCPS, you get to answer questions. So you have to be able to apply it. Well, they're not gonna just be straightforward, you know, fact-based memorization type questions. They're gonna be no. one of the application and integration so that you, they, that you demonstrate that higher level of competency. And so um, when you're studying, you need to keep that in mind that yes, while you may be reviewing some core knowledge, you need to be building it to the next level of therapeutic application. And then what we try to do, we have you know live study groups where we really take cases. And my job in leading those is to help you pull all that together, 
and apply it. Because if you can do that and you understand the concept, then you can answer any question given to you because the concepts are for the most part, not really changing. The, you know, you can change a few variables in the question, but really they're testing you on a concept when it boil, you, boil, you boil down to the nuts and bolts of the question. Um, yeah. And what I haven't taken so many board exams, you see a consistent pattern. Um, the questions, you know, there are similarities, you know, and there's similar concepts actually, even the cross professions, interestingly. Um, and so if you understand that concept, you know how to apply it, you're going to do well. Um, and so that's what we try to get people to do, but that's what also encourage people to do is not to go into that test thinking that because you've memorized things that you're going to pass. That's not going to happen. No. And I think, I mean, we can't go into like real life practice like that either. Correct. That doesn't right. happen. Not patients aren't black and white. Like, <laughs> right. you know, you can't be like, oh, this is the perfect drug here. Take it. Like, well, yeah. what if you can't afford that drug? Or exactly. I mean, there's a million variables. Absolutely. And I have to say, I haven't been on one of these live sessions, but mm -hmm. they sound pretty great. Yeah, Not to fun. like have a nerdy moment, <laughs> but I'm going to have to join some of those. <laughs> yeah, no, they're fun. And, you know, we try to make them interactive and, and engaging. Um, but it's meant to really kind of be like when you're on rounds or when you're in clinic. Yeah. You know? I mean, this is, here's a case. What are you going to do? What do you need to order? Why are you ordering that? Why is this the best option? What is another option that we could consider if the patient had insurance? What if they don't have insurance? You know, mm -hmm. that's the kind of thing that we need to be thinking about. And so it does try to, in a safe environment, expose holes, but also to get you to, to looking at the material in a different way. Yeah. And I like one of the ways I know everyone learns differently. Like some people love just reading stuff and that is mm -hmm. how they memorize things best or understand things the best. That mm -hmm. is not me at all. I, I hated partially studying for the Naplex because it was just that giant book and yeah. I had to like read it all and then come up with my own notes. But I missed like one of my favorite classes in pharmacy school was pharmacology because mm -hmm. we just had this genius professor who would stand at the front of the room and he just lectured, not no mm -hmm. notes, no nothing for an hour. Mm -hmm. And I would not be able to keep up with him like typing my notes. So I would just, you know, do little jotted down notes as yeah. best as I could, but I would record every class and then I would go home that day. I would re-listen to it and I would make my notes like beautiful and like pretty. Mm -hmm. And when I read those notes back, it was like he was speaking to me. Like I just was able to like truly understand things yeah. and remember the way he explained it. And I feel like I'm having those same moments again with your course because <laughs> I love listening to not to be weird or creepy, but like yeah. your voice explaining everything because hearing it while seeing it on the screen and typing my own notes, like it just sinks in. And that is how I learned best. Good. So for anyone who's an auditory or visual learner like that, amazing. Well, thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> You're welcome. I feel like I already know you as soon as we got <laughs> on this call because I was like, oh, that voice is so familiar. <laughs> I know that you talked about EBM, evidence-based mm -hmm. medicine. Yeah. And I obviously from the course, but also from just my personal life, hearing about the exam, you know, that and biostats and literature and all that is part of the exam. Yep, absolutely. So can we talk about that a little bit? Like, can we talk about why biostats and clinical literature is such a significant part of the exam? Because I've heard 
literally from people that if you don't understand that and you can't answer those questions, like you're probably not going to pass the exam. But if you can do biostats and understand evidence-based medicine and all of that, then you have a pretty good shot at passing the exam. Absolutely. What you have heard is exactly my experience, not only, you know, taking it myself, uh, but from hearing from our own, you know, customers through the years, um, it is the greatest hurdle that most people have. And I think it is important to understand why is it such a big component and to the exam, and it is, a, it is relevant to have to add, answer, ask this question and to understand the why. It's not there to annoy you, okay? Uh, it really goes back again to what is the purpose of even a, life, a, a state board exam or a licensure exam? It's really actually to protect the patient from us. They're trying to demonstrate that you know enough information that you're not gonna go out and hurt somebody, right? And so the boards have a similar sort of perspective um, in that they want to make sure that you're gonna, you're gonna be able to keep your mind trained, you're gonna to continue to invest in lifelong learning and you're gonna apply that information for the benefit of the patient. Now, let's think back to the 1990s. You know, the 1990s wasn't just about Nirvana, Pearl Jam, and <laughs> some of those old school. I was uh, born in the 90s. Yeah, but it wasn't just about, it wasn't just about those, you know, things, but there was actually a huge paradigm shift that was, that occurred and was introduced basically to healthcare, and that was evidence-based medicine in 1992 mm -hmm. in JAMA. That was 28 years ago uh, that everything in healthcare really switched um, and everything now you hear is evidence-based this, evidence-based that. So we have like multiple terms now. You know, it's not just evidence-based medicine, but it's evidence-based practice, evidence-based clinical practice, evidence-based healthcare. I mean, my degree at Oxford was a master's in evidence-based healthcare. So you have all this stuff, but what is, I mean, what was the paradigm shift and what is EBM, you know, supposed to be? It's not just about evidence, because if you could just go read articles and not go to school or not go through training, then you should be able to take care of a patient. Well, we know that's not true. So it's about really, if you go back to the core essence of EBM and how it was introduced, it's about how to answer a single question for a single patient care scenario. That's what PICO is. And when you look at the principles of evidence-based medicine, you're basically integrating three main components the best available evidence mm -hmm. combined with clinical experience or expertise combined with patient specific factors. And when all three of those things come together in equal amounts of consideration, then you're kind of practicing evidence-based medicine. Okay. So the question is then why did EBM even evolve and translate into why the board exams want to make sure that you understand how to interpret biostatistical tests and understand the risk uh, differences in different study designs and how to interpret clinical literature. Well, it goes back to one of the landmark um, systematic reviews and meta-analysis done by some of the folks that started Cochrane. Um, and this was, have you ever heard of uh, the back to sleep campaign, pediatrics, you know, we now put kids on their backs. Well, back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, it was recommended by clinicians, experts, pediatricians, to that the child should be laying prone, face down. Oh. Right, yeah. Why was that? Well, because kids spit up. 
And when they regurgitate, you know, have reflux or they spit up, well, we don't want them to asphyxiate in the middle of the night. So it made sense in our minds. So let's not lay them on their back. Let's lay them on their front, right? Or prone position. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that just sort of made sense. It was sort of that common sense. Well, in the 70s, the evidence started coming out showing that babies that were actually uh, supine uh, did better. And those who were prone position had a greater mortality. And so this meta-analysis after meta-analysis kept showing the same trend, and even all the way up into the late 80s. It took that long, almost 20 years for us as healthcare providers, despite published evidence, to see that we were harming kids. Yeah. Because of something that we were ignorant to in the literature. And that, that is a very famous systematic review and, and meta-analysis to this day that actually is part of the Cochrane logo. And so what happened after that is that we don't want to, that's just one of many examples, I can give you others, but where our common sense was proved wrong by evidence. So then why then do we want to make sure that clinicians know how to read and interpret the literature? Well, we don't want to make the same mistakes again. Plus, you are held accountable for the recommendations that you make in practice. And if you have certain privileges and you're taking care of the patients, you're going to be held accountable for the decisions that you make. And you need to be able Mm -hmm. to articulate at some level why you're doing what you're doing and, and incorporate the evidence into that. Okay. Now, herein lies the problem, though, as it relates to the test and everybody's anxiety. We've all been, and you said it a little bit just a second ago, being in class. You you kind of didn't like it. I didn't. It was not a fun part of school. I I didn't like it because I felt like, why is this, why can't I get my mind wrapped around this? I took statistics before, you know, coming to the pharmacy program. It was kind of one of those prerequisite sort of things that I went through and I had. So it's not like I, this is the first time I ever heard of it. So why am I having such a difficult time? And it's a lot of times it's because sometimes the way people teach it, it's confusing. Mm-hmm, very true. And I, I just had to withdraw myself mentally from that course and my experiences from that. And I just went out and basically taught myself. Well, it's also like the, so what, yeah. who cares? I love, I love when you say that in your videos, <laughs> like, so what, who cares? Like yeah. we all care, we all should, but no, like going through school and, yeah. you know, having to set up those little charts and what I don't quote me on any of my knowledge. Cause I haven't looked at the EBM section yet. I'm saving that for a little before uh, okay. my exam since it's not what I do every day. So I want it to be fresh, but like going through school and, and doing all those things, like, oh. It really was the, so what, who, like, why am I doing this? But Absolutely. then you get out into real life practice and you're like, oh, this is why. Yeah. I mean, so like in 1994, we finally introduced this back to sleep campaign for kids in this country, you know, and so that's why we promote it. And now why we are basically saving people's lives, even though in, from a common sense standpoint, it may seem counterintuitive because if, if a child does spit up, you know. And so, so the boards want to make sure that you are able to read the literature, that you can interpret that literature, and then you know how to then make decisions. Are you, just like you said at the beginning, are you going to change the way you make the decisions that you make today based off of this new publication? Yep. Based off that study and that you, you just You read. have to be able to answer that for yourself because you're the one who's going to have to answer if something were potentially to happen. 
for or Absolutely. you know good or bad, right? Why if what if one of your own teammates or your your colleague says, "Hey, why are you recommending that?" You need to be able to articulate that. You uh-huh. know, if you get a patient coming in with acute coronary syndrome and they've had an, an end STEMI, why are we giving this patient aspirin? Well, is it because the guidelines say so? Okay, well then, but why do the guidelines say that? Yeah, exactly. Well, it really goes back to the ISIS-2 trial where, you know, starting aspirin in that first day reduces vascular-related mortality by 21% at 30 days. That's huge. That I is. mean, that's a big deal. Now, that now when you interpret it like that and you apply it to that patient scenario, now it has meaning. And so if even if the patient says, why are you giving me this medicine? Yeah. You need to be able to articulate to them in a way that they understand it, why this has value. No drug is perfect, but it has the benefits outweigh the risk, and here's what that benefit is. Mm-hmm. And so the boards want to make sure that you're able to do that, especially in a day and an age in our healthcare system where everything is about evidence. We have evidence-based guidelines, evidence-based practice standards. And so that's why it's built into the core, uh, into your exam, and, and it's a it does contribute to a high percentage. Now, here's the problem also that candidates taking the exam experience, they don't know how to interpret the result. So -hmm. if you do a relative risk, what does it mean? Not just what is the number? They're not gonna ask you to just do the math, but it's, it's, you have to do the math, then tell them what it means. So there's actually two parts to answering the question. And if you miscalculate the first part, then you miss the second part. And I think that's what gets people frustrated um, and makes it hard is, is that that last level of interpretation mm-hmm. uh, and picking the right statistical test and all those kind of things. Um, so you're well, right. It is and it's not important. A if you say like yeah. relative risk is this, your patient's going to look at you like, well, what does that mean? Right. Exactly. And you're supposed to know what that means, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That all goes back to the patient. So. hmm yeah. And I thought like I going through residency, obviously, you know, journal clubs are very high on evidence-based medicine and all of that. But I mean, yeah. just the past couple of weeks, like sitting in central pharmacy, I mean, you hear people on the phone or like your coworkers talking about, mm-hmm. you know, so-and-so made this recommendation today and told me there was some new study. And I was like, uh-uh, buddy, where is that study? Cause I'm going to read it and I'm going to tell you what's up. Like, like, no, no, no. What, what evidence are you talking about? And it, like, it comes up all the time in actual practice. Someone yeah. tries to do something out of left field and it's like, hold on, like, what, what are you citing? Like what mm-hmm. I need to read that and like, make sure that that's, that's mm-hmm. what's up. And, Absolutely. you know, and then it's like the study was done and it's completely irrelevant patient population or something that just doesn't make sense at all. Right. But like that catchy title or something just like draws people and they're like, oh, that must be right. And it's like, no, you really have to dig into what you're reading. And I feel like that's also such a big issue with all the COVID stuff happening right now. Cause like mm-hmm. articles will come out and they're not even like mm-hmm. real medical articles or like in the newspaper or something. Right. And they're, you know, claiming all these benefits and then like people start reposting it. And I'm like, whoa, like you got to take a step back and you need to look yeah. at what you're actually posting and what you're actually telling people because we are, we're not in a day and age of like, oh yeah, he said, she said, it's great. Like we're in day and age, like you said, of evidence-based medicine mm-hmm. and as a clinician and as someone who's getting board certified, like that's what is expected of you. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. You know, you bring up a great point too, because board exams, you know, uh, are a little bit different than um, sometimes clinical practice. When we follow guidelines and you look at evidence-based guidelines, we make assumptions, don't we? I mean, we assume that everything in there is evidence-based, but you're right. You made a very important observation about digging in. Where did that come from? What, what does that say? And even in guidelines, you actually have to do that. Mm -hmm. um, the greatest example of this is um, in acute coronary syndrome. You know how we will commonly... Oh, I was just on this chapter. I love it. Yes. Yeah. Where you yes, give I know patients, what you're going to say. Yeah. Nitroglycerin sublingual tablets. We do that all the time. You know, minister at one every five minutes times three. You know, I mean, it's like, yeah, there should be a, probably a randomized controlled trial that proves that that is beneficial because that's what we do. And the guidelines will actually say it. But if you look in the guidelines and you actually go to those references, those references have nothing to do with that. They're all about chronic stable angina with mm -hmm. the MDUR, isosorbide dinitrate and mononitrate formulations. And you're like, wait a minute, that has nothing to do with this. And I, I mean, I've done pretty extensive literature searches and it's never been studied. I can't find a single study to date that actually shows that doing that actually has evidence of benefit. Now, we're extrapolating the data from pharmacokinetics of IVs and this and that, but the, but the point I'm trying to make is that just because something is written in a guideline, and especially an evidence-based guideline, doesn't always mean that that evidence is really there. That's a little scary, actually. Um, you know, because like, then, well, 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 then what, do I, what do I rely on? Yeah. Yeah, you gotta be able to read it and look at those uh, references like you had mentioned. Um, so anyway, and and for some patient populations like ACLS, mm -hmm. like it's hard to do really good studies in that because it's just not ethical, you know. Absolutely. Like yeah. someone's dying in front of you, like oh, let's treat patient A with this and not do anything else, and let's do patient B with like we can't do that. Yeah, so I mean, think of, think of doing uh, doing a randomized controlled trial in somebody with if you they have uh, ventricular fibrillation. Are you going to yeah. do a randomized controlled trial where the one patient doesn't get defibrillated and the other one does? When you know defibrillation right. is like the thing that yeah. saves people. Like someone just gets placebo, which is like nothing, and it's like, oh, right. sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, same reason we don't have great evidence in like pediatrics and pregnant patients because no one wants to test those patients no yes. one wants to harm them so they are hard they are harder for sure yeah i mean it's evidence-based medicine is never going to be perfect like we're not going to have answers sure. for everything but sure. it it's again something that i think a lot of people don't think of in their daily practice but mm -hmm. it goes into their daily practice because it is why we are what we're doing yep so absolutely. very very important i totally agree Thank you so much again for joining me, Dr. Bustai. This conversation has been so enlightening and so fun. And I think our listeners are just going to get so much out of this. Um, so thank you again for your time. Absolutely. Thanks, Madeline, for having us. It's, it was a pleasure. And I uh, wish you the best on your exam. Thank and you. <laughs> if we can do anything to help you or your, your listeners and followers, we're happy to, to do that. Absolutely. And where can our listeners go to learn more about you or high yield med reviews and check it out for themselves? Yeah, it's just highyieldmedreviews.com. And there is a section about us and um, some of our faculty and contributors and our team. Uh, they're there. We're all, I'm also on LinkedIn. Uh, oh, I should add you stuff. on LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah, so happy to connect with anybody on LinkedIn. Um, and, and feel free to send a message. Um, and then, of course, we're on other social media platforms, but yeah, those are the, probably the quickest ways to get in touch with us. 
Yep, you guys are on Instagram. That's how I found you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dr. Bustai, thank you so much. Have a great evening. All right, you too. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. That's all for this episode of the Lux Pharmacist Podcast. Be sure to share this podcast on your social media networks. And let's reach more innovative pharmacists with a flair for style, a creative approach to life, and a passion for patient care. Learn more. Check out theluxpharmacist.com.